0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today, we have episode 345 for October 9th, 2023. Got a new show for you today. Lots of fun stories, or at least interesting stories to get you up on this week. Real quick before I get into the rundown, there's an important iOS update. Again, you're looking for iOS 17.0.3. Make sure you install this as soon as possible. There are active exploits in the wild against the prior versions. I know this has been like, Something that's happening a lot lately. I'm not sure what's going on, but you know it's a good thing when we get these things fixed. So take advantage of that and make sure you get those updates uh, as soon as possible. Also, a quick reminder, the giveaway for a free copy of Nick Ole's book, How to Catch a Fish is still going on. You've got about a week left. It ends on October fifteenth. To get all the details, get all the details go to, get all, the details, go to all in lowercase. And of course, fish in this case is spelled with a pH. Once again, this is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, so we've got a nice little tip of the week, Uh, kind of an oldie but a goodie, and something that we've actually talked about recently, but uh, we'll get into that after we get into the news. So, news, we've got several stories for you today. Uh, I've got an interesting story from Wired about a bunch of cheap Android TV streaming boxes that come with malware and ad fraud software built right in. You may have seen this story in the news, but 23andMe, the DNA testing service, has been the victim of a data breach. 404 Media has published a, a bombshell report um, about how certain government agencies have been uh, allegedly illegally using smartphone location data, certainly in not in accordance with their own rules. Meta is proposing an ad-free version of Facebook and Instagram uh, with plans starting at about $17 US per month. And I'll tell you why they're doing that. The FBI is warning of a surge in what they're calling phantom hacker scams and how it is largely impacting the elderly. Microsoft has a new AI tool that allows you to clone a voice from just three seconds worth of their audio. An interesting report from Microsoft shows that attackers who are trying to brute force passwords don't even bother with long passwords. I thought this was interesting. If you've been ignoring the free upgrades from Windows 7 and Windows 8 to Windows 10 and on to Windows 11, you might want to jump on that right away. In fact, it may already be too late, but there has been a way to get those upgrades for free and kind of on the sly. And so I'll talk to you about how you can do that. The FCC now has a full complement of commissioners, uh, an odd number, uh, three Democrats and two Republicans. Until recently, it was two and two, which left the entire FCC deadlocked. But now that they have a Democratic majority, they are looking to reinstate net neutrality. The EFF has some comments on Google's privacy sandbox and the Topics technology and why you should turn it off and how. There's a new app from Consumer Reports that's kind of interesting that helps you find and delete personal data. And a quick update from our friends at Panquake. They still haven't released their full-fledged social media application But they have come out with an interesting new tool that I want to tell you about. And then we'll get to our tip of the week. So lots to talk about. Let's get to the news. All right. First up, this is from Wired, and uh, it's about cheap Android TV streaming boxes. And they say, when you buy a TV streaming box, there are certain things you wouldn't expect it to do. It shouldn't secretly be laced with malware or start communicating with servers in China when it's powered up. It definitely should not be acting as a node in an organized crime scheme making millions of dollars through fraud. However, that's been the reality for thousands of unknowing people who bought cheap Android TV devices. In January, security researcher Daniel Millisek discovered that a cheap Android TV streaming box called the T95 was infected with malware right out of the box, with multiple other researchers confirming the findings. But it was just the tip of the iceberg. Today's cybersecurity firm, Human Security, is revealing new details about the scope of the infected devices and the hidden, interconnected web of fraud schemes linked to the streaming boxes. Human security researchers found seven Android TV boxes and one tablet with the back doors installed, and they've seen signs of 200 different models of Android devices that may be impacted, according to a report shared exclusively with Wired. The devices are in homes, businesses, and schools across the U.S. Meanwhile, human security says it's also taken down advertising fraud linked to the scheme, which likely helped pay for the operation. Cheap Android streaming boxes, usually costing less than $50, are sold online and in brick-and-mortar shops. These set-top boxes often are unbranded or sold under different names, partly obscuring their source. In total, the researchers confirmed 8 devices with backdoors installed: 7 TV boxes, the T95, T95Z, T95 Max, X88, Q9, X12 Plus, and MXQ Pro 5G, and a tablet. Uh, dubbed j5w the tv devices are built in china somewhere before they reach the hands of the resellers researchers don't know exactly where a firmware back door is added to them this back door which is based on the triada malware first spotted by security firm kaspersky in 2016 modifies one element of the on, of the android operating system allowing itself to access apps installed on the devices then it phones home and in this case china human security tracked multiple types of fraud linked to the compromised devices. This includes advertising fraud, residential proxy services, where the group behind the scheme sell access to your home network, the creation of fake Gmail and WhatsApp accounts using the connections, and remote code installation. Those behind the scheme were selling access to residential networks commercially, claiming to have access to more than 10 million home IP addresses and 7 million mobile IP addresses. All right, this article actually goes on quite a bit. There's another aspect of the story where there are some uh, bad apps, but I wanted to focus on the hardware parts. And so just real quick, my notes on this would be, stay away from cheap IoT devices, especially if if they've got these unknown brand names. Stick with names you know, names that have reputation, and just pay money for better stuff. Uh, These cheap things have to make their money some way. And, And in a lot of cases, it's monetizing your data. In this case, it's actually straight up malware. And some of the apps they were talking about, by the way, they kind of sounds like what they were doing is they were uh, licensing or giving away a framework for building just kind of run of the mill ads, like a template for building iOS and Android apps. You know, like uh, some of the apps were like how to develop six pack abs and some of them were like logging the amount of water you drink, Um, you know, kind of useless little apps. But they whip them out, they throw them out there and hope somebody's going to download them and then, you know, they get up to no good. So anyway, (laughs) Shop carefully. Don't don't install apps willy-nilly. Don't buy things that are obviously a little bit too cheap from name brands you don't trust. All right, next up, this is from Cyberscoop, which I'm not sure if I've quoted them before, but theirs was the first story I saw about this 23andMe data theft. The DNA testing company 23andMe is investigating whether a large trove of customer data was stolen from the company after information about the firm's clients was offered for sale on a cyber crime forum earlier this week. Uh, On Sunday, and I think this would have been last Sunday, a post on a popular forum where stolen data is traded and sold, claimed to have, quote, the most valuable data you'll ever see, unquote, and posted a link to a sample of what was described as, quote, 20 million pieces of data, unquote, from 23andMe. In a statement to CyberScoop on Thursday, 23andMe said it was made aware that, quote, certain 23andMe customer profile information was compiled through unauthorized access to individual 23andMe.com accounts, unquote. But that there is no, quote, indication at this time that there has been a data security incident within our systems, unquote. The company said its preliminary investigation uh, indicated that an attacker may have compiled login credentials leaked from other platforms and then recycled these credentials to access the accounts of 23andMe customers who had used the same username and password combination. For accounts that had opted into 23andMe's DNA Relatives service, which allows users to find and connect with genetic relatives and learn more about your family, the, attack, the attacker was able to scrape data associated with potential relatives, company officials told Cyberscoop. The officials said that the information obtained may have included users' display name, profile photo, profile sex, birth year, location, predicted relationships to their match. The percent DNA match a number of shared genetic segments and portions of their genetic ancestry results, including haplogroups, which provide information about ancestry. The exact scope of the data obtained by the attacker remains unclear, and CyberScoop has not been able to verify the authenticity of the data offered for sale. After the data was first offered for sale on Sunday, the listing was pulled down. The poster reemerged on Wednesday, offering what they described as data on, quote, tailored ethnic groupings, individualized data sets, pinpointed origin estimations, haplogroup details, phenotype information, photographs, links to hundreds of potential relatives, and most crucially, raw data profiles, unquote. The seller offered the data in 100, 1,000, 10,000, and 100,000 profile batches. The seller claimed in a message to CyberScoop that they had 13 million profiles, but did not respond to questions about when or how the data was accessed and whether they'd been in touch with 23andMe. So a couple obvious takeaways from this. First of all, credential stuffing is a thing. It happens. This is when bad guys get your login information from one site, and because they know people reuse that information on other sites... They try it everywhere else they can. These lists of email address and password combinations are all over the dark web. And so when bad guys buy those batches of credentials, they just try them wherever they can. And in this case, they looks like they found a lot of people who had reused passwords from other data breaches uh, on 23andMe. And then because of the way some of the, uh, uh, the features on 23andMe worked, which allowed you to see information from other people basically what it sounds like is they just scraped the data. They logged into these accounts, they got access to all these accounts and then got as much data from those users and any users that they had access to as well and scraped a whole bunch of data. So the other obvious takeaway here is that you need to be really careful where you allow companies to take your data and how much data they they take and how much you share. And when you're done, you need to have that data deleted. You should just close those accounts and make sure that data is deleted so that you know, years later, when something like this happens, your data is not there to be stolen. All right, next up, this is from 404 Media. I'm really liking what these guys are doing. These guys are from Motherboard, there's four of them. Uh, I'm actually in contact with them. I'm going to be hopefully interviewing one or two of them uh, sometime in the, uh, in the near future. But I'm really liking uh, the investigative journalism these guys are doing. And this one is about uh, a report that came out of the Department of Homeland Security about location data usage. In a bombshell report, an oversight body of the Department of Homeland Security found that Immigration and and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, Customs and Border Enforcement, CBP, and the Secret Service all broke the law while using location data harvested from ordinary apps installed on smartphones. In one instance, a CBP official also inappropriately used the technology to track the location of coworkers with no investigative purpose. For years, U.S. government agencies have been buying access to location data through commercial vendors, a practice which critics say skirts the Fourth Amendment requirement of a warrant. During that time, the agencies have typically refused to publicly explain the legal basis on which they based their purchase and use the data. Now, the report shows that three of the main customers of commercial location data broke the law while doing so and didn't have any supervisory review to ensure proper use of the technology. The report also recommends that ICE stop all use of such data until it obtains the necessary approvals, a request that ICE has refused. And this is a quote from Nate Wessler, who I've interviewed before from the ACLU. Uh, And Nate says, quote, It is disturbing that these agencies blithely ignore the federal law that requires a serious assessment of the privacy impacts of exactly this kind of access to people's private information. If these agencies had gone through the appropriate process before buying the sensitive data, they could have only reached one reasonable conclusion. The privacy impact is extreme, unquote. The report is titled CBP ICE and Secret Service did not adhere to privacy policies or develop sufficient policies before procuring and using commercial telemetry data is dated September 28, 2023 and comes from Joseph V. Kolfari, the inspector general for DHS. The report was originally marked as law enforcement sensitive, but the inspector general has now released it publicly. Commercial telemetry data, or CTD, is the internal term DHS uses to describe commercially sourced location data. In one section, the report says that a CBP employee used such data to spy on coworkers, And a quote from the report, quote, the individual told the co-workers that they had tracked their location using CTD, unquote. A complaint followed, and the report says the issue was, quote unquote, resolved administratively. On the broader legal issues, the report says that the agencies did not follow the E-Government Act of 2002, which requires that agencies receive an approved Privacy Impact Assessment or PIA before buying access to tools like this. Another quote from the report, quote, this occurred because the components did not have sufficient internal controls to ensure compliance with DHS privacy policies and because the DHS privacy office did not follow or enforce its own privacy policies and guidance, unquote. Beyond that, the report also says the various parts of DHS did not have sufficient policies and procedures in place to ensure that the location data was used appropriately. CBP's rules were interim policies and did not have complete versions, according to the report. ICE and the Secret Service, meanwhile, did not have any policies specifically for the data at all. That and the DHS did not have an overarching policy to govern its various components' use of location data. In other words, ICE, CBP and the Secret Service all purchased access to location data, which is typically siphoned from seemingly innocuous apps on phones, often without the user's knowledge or informed consent, while not having enough formal guardrails in place that dictated how that data could be used. That, again, does not adhere to the law. And this is a quote from Josh Richman, uh, a spokesman for EFF. Uh, and Josh says, quote, The report makes it clear that DHS agencies have been playing it fast and loose with their acquisition of Americans' location data. Congress needs to explicitly bar law enforcement and intelligence agencies from purchasing data from private companies that they would have otherwise needed a warrant to acquire, unquote. The Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, which passed the House Judiciary Committee in July, would address that loophole. So we've been talking about this a lot on this show, this end run around the Fourth Fourth Amendment, uh, because all this data is being collected by private entities. Uh, It is now available for purchase by law enforcement and other agencies that would otherwise not be able to access it legally without a warrant. This is a major loophole uh, that we have got to close. All right, next up, this is from nine to five Mac. Uh, TikTok has been going ad free for five bucks a month, but you'll have to pay a bit more for similar experience on Meta's platform. A new report details Meta's proposal to offer a version of Facebook and Instagram with no ads. That would cost nearly $17 a month, (laughs) though the pricing really should be in euros because this won't be available in the United States. I'll go on. The Wall Street Journal reports that Meta is currently considering subscription ad free plans for its users in Europe. The subscription would continue to drive revenue for Meta while the company complies with new rules requiring it to let users opt out of ads. New privacy regulations in the EU will force Meta to request express consent before serving users with personalized advertising. Facebook and Instagram would remain free for users who grant permission to receive personalized ads. Wall Street Journal breaks down how pricing per account would work under the proposal. And this is a quote from the wall street journal under the plan meta has told regulators it would charge users roughly 10 euros a month equivalent to about 10.50 on desk on desktop on a facebook or instagram account and roughly six euros for each additional linked account the people said on mobile devices the prices would jump to roughly 13 euros a month because meta would factor in commissions charged by apple's and google's app stores on in-app payments Back to the article, the report notes that it's unclear if EU regulators will accept a paid subscription as a compliant alternative to personalized advertising. For example, regulators could require Meta to offer a version of Facebook and Instagram for free with ads that do not use personal data for targeted ads. For its part, Meta is pointing to other services like YouTube that use similar monthly pricing to offer ad-free experiences for users. Presumably, the subscription plan to remove ads would be limited to the EU where targeted advertising based on personal data is under scrutiny. That's in part because Meta likely earns more per user on average than even the steep subscription plans would cost. So this is obviously still in the works. It hasn't been accepted yet by the EU, (laughs) but it's really interesting to watch and see, you know, roughly, I guess what meta thinks its users are, you know, advertising is worth, you know, if they've got to give up monetizing their users, how much are they going to charge them uh, to to get past that? One thing that's not clear to me, though, because a lot of these articles do this, they they kind of mix these things together, showing ads is one thing and tracking you is another, and showing you targeted ads is a different than just showing you any kind of ads, this article talks about that a little bit. So I suppose that the, the same rules, the GDPR rules, uh, and things that are, getting in the way of e, of meta showing you targeted ads should also be preventing them from collecting data. But those two things don't necessarily go together. I mean, it's possible not to be shown ads and still be tracked, for example. But I'm frankly, just surprised and annoyed that these companies haven't read the writing on the wall and just said, you know what, fine, let's 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 offer a version of our service that is ad free. And sure, we'll charge a subscription for it because they got to make money. I get that. So, but why not give people the option? I, I don't, it's gotta be simpler on their part to not do all this tracking and advertising and crap. Uh, just charge a flat subscription. Uh, I just wish this was an option. I would definitely pay money for that. Okay, I, I say that, but I suppose I would have to, you know, the details always in the fine print. I'd have to know that they were definitely not tracking me and not doing other stupid stuff. But anyway, the, the thought is, I really wish that they, that they would just start offering this and, and switch to that model. And, I, and honestly, I'm okay with the option of having, uh, you know, a free or or discounted services that shows you non-targeted ads without all the tracking, without all the data mining, just showing you ads, or one that costs more that has no ads. I understand that. That makes sense to me. And you can do that in a way that is privacy preserving if you do it right. That's you know, that's a big if, but with the right regulation, we could make sure that that happens. All right. Next up, this is a, a kind of interesting story uh, from Bleeping Computer. The FBI issued a public service announcement warning of significant increase in "quote unquote" phantom hacker scams targeting senior citizens across the United States. This is a quote from the FBI, quote, this phantom hacker scam is an evolution of more general tech support scams, layering imposter tech support, financial institution and government personas to enhance the trust victims place in the scammers and identify the most lucrative accounts to target. Victims often suffer the loss of entire banking savings, retirement or investment accounts under the guise of protecting their assets, unquote. In such scams, multiple fraudsters masquerading as bank representatives are contacting unsuspecting victims, falsely alleging that their accounts had fallen victim to hacking attempts. Subsequently, these scammers employ various tactics to persuade their targets to grant access to their banking accounts, assessing whether they possess significant funds warranting further pursuit. Should the victim's account balance make them valuable targets, they receive instructions to await a call from their bank, a second scammer involved in the scheme advising them to transfer their funds to what is claimed to be a secure account under the control of the fraudsters in instances where targets prove resistant to manipulation a third contact is made by an imposter posing as a representative of the u.s government who makes a final attempt to persuade the victims urging them to safeguard their finances by moving their funds to a quote unquote safe account and this is another quote from the fbi quote between January and June of 2023, 19,000 complaints related to tech support scams were submitted to the FBI Internet Crime Complaint Center, or IC3, with estimated victim losses of over $542 million. Almost 50% of the victims reported to IC3 were over 60 years old, comprising 66% of the total losses. As of August of 2023, losses have already exceeded those in 2022 by 40%, unquote. The FBI cautions individuals vulnerable to potential scams against engaging with unsolicited pop-ups, links sent via text messages, or email attachments. Additionally, they should refrain from contacting the telephone number provided in any pop-up, text, or email, and never download software at the behest of an unfamiliar individual who has approached them. As an additional precaution, avoid granting control of your computer to any unknown individual. The FBI also emphasized that the U.S. government will never demand cryptocurrency, gift or prepaid cards, or money through wire transfers to foreign accounts. Those who have been targeted in such scams are urged to report the incidents by filing a complaint, and that's a link that you can click on, so you'd have to go to the show notes to find that, with the Internet Crime Complaint Center, or IC3. Complaints should contain details such as the identity of the individual or company who made contact, the communication method, and the recipient's name and address to which funds were sent. In a November advisory, law enforcement cautioned of scammers impersonating financial institutions' refund payment portals to deceive victims, particularly among the elderly demographic, by taking advantage of the perceived credibility of such institutions. So these scams aren't new, but apparently they are really on the rise. And basically, anytime somebody reaches out to you out of the blue, no matter what the mechanism, and this article talks about email and text messages, uh, but I've also seen uh, phone calls, just cold calls out of nowhere telling people, hey, we've noticed that there's something wrong with your computer or your internet service or your bank account or uh, one of several things, and we're here to help. So whenever somebody calls you out of nowhere that you don't expect and says, you've got a problem, I'm here to fix it, you should honestly just hang up. Uh, Or if it's an email or a link, just delete it and ignore it. But if for some reason somebody tricks you and you get past that far, the next major red flag that should set off serious sirens in your head is when they try to get you to install some software, particularly if that software is a uh, remote control software so they can quote unquote help you you know, remotely work on your computer. But if honestly, if they get you to install any software, you're in trouble. So anyway, I've, I've known people that have gotten uh, victimized in this way, some successfully, some not. So it absolutely is happening out there. And I just wanted to make sure you were aware of this and uh, if, you have, if you're listening to this and you've got you know, elderly parents or other people that you care about that that they might be older and sitting at home by the phone all day and might be susceptible to this, you should absolutely be warning them about scams like this. All right, next up, this is from futurism.com, another site that I haven't heard of. But uh, I ran across this, I think, on social media. So somebody else linked me to it. And it's a new Microsoft AI tool that can, quote unquote, clone your voice uh, using just three seconds of audio as input. And I actually have some samples for you after this story to give you an idea of what this sounds like. But let me read the article first. Microsoft says its new text to speech AI can clone your voice tone and all from a three second snippet of audio. It's called Val E that's V-A-L-L E and we have mixed feelings. The underlying tech behind the system, which Microsoft refers to in a new paper as Neural Codec Language Model, is complex. But in practice, using the system appears to be wildly simple. Plug in an audio sample, then some text, and voila, real-sounding speech. Of course, many text-to-speech apps already exist. Most news sites, us included, for example, offer machine-powered dictation services, while speaking assistants like Siri and Alexa are hugely popular. Most existing speech-generating programs, however, require a large amount of input. They also haven't exactly figured out how to make AI voices sound particularly human, mostly due to the fact that emotional tone and tiny inflections are incredibly complex to convey. If Microsoft's system really can deliver on the tone piece, with that little required on the input side, that's a big deal. According to its creators, Valley has a number of applications including, quote, Zero Shot TTS, which is text to speech, speech editing and content creation, unquote, adding that OpenAI's GPT-3 language model system, a technology that Microsoft, per its absolutely massive investment into OpenAI, has put a ton of resources into and is already working into several products, would be a particularly useful piece of tech to combine with the new speech generator as a means of churning out content. And if the latter is something you might be into, Microsoft does have a point. Theoretically, by combining VAL-E and GPT-3, two powerful powerful pieces of AI-driven tech, you could patch together a ton of real-sounding, believable content incredibly quickly. But that, of course, is where some ethically tricky hypotheticals enter into the picture. Fake and misleading sound bites are obviously a concern here. After all, if you only need three seconds of audio, you could theoretically use anything from a celebrity interview to a real person's Instagram story to impersonate someone. That said, Microsoft was careful to address that concern, explaining that it's refraining, at least from now, from making the code open source due to, quote, potential risks in misuse of the model, unquote. They also claim that they're working on incorporating some kind of system that detects whether audio was created using Valley. But maybe they should ask their friends over at OpenAI how easy that really is. All right, so I've got a couple a couple more things I want to read. First of all, I went and checked out the, the Microsoft site for this. And there's some examples which I'm going to play for you here in a second. But at the bottom of the page for this Microsoft tool, announcement, whatever, for Val E, there's this ethics statement. And I, I want to read this because I think it's interesting val e slash x there's actually two different tools here could synthesize speech that maintains speaker identity and could be used for educational learning entertainment journalistic self-authored content accessibility features interactive voice response systems translation chatbot and so on while vale slash x can speak in a voice like the like the voice talent in other words the, the original live human the similarity and the naturalness depend on the length and quality of the speech prompt the background noise as well as other factors It may carry potential risks in the misuse of the model, such as spoofing voice identification or impersonating a specific speaker. We conducted the experiments under the assumption that the user agrees to be the target speaker in speech synthesis. If the model is generalized to unseen speakers in the real world, it should include a protocol to ensure that the speaker approves that the use of their voice and a synthesized speech detection model. If you suspect that Valley slash X is being used in a manner that is abusive or illegal or infringes on your rights or the rights of other people, you can report it at the report abuse portal. Now, that to me just sounds like a lot of CYA crap, and it really seems to be avoiding the, the, the obvious issues with this. Sure, you can, basically what this is saying is it's on you. Uh, if you get to use this tool, then you're the one who has to make sure that you're using it properly and getting the permissions from everybody involved and not using it for malicious purposes. You know, we're washing our hands of all that, but here's a really cool tool. So let me play you a couple samples, and I hope this is not a copyright problem, <laughs> But I'm just going to pick two. There were several samples on this webpage and you can find the link in the show notes. Uh, so I'm going to first, all, I'm going to play you the three second sample. And I'm guessing that this is the three seconds that they used to train their model. And then the next part I'm going to play for you is generated sound from that three second sample that was generated by giving it some text to read and then telling it to, you know, give voice to this text, speak it out loud. So here's example one, number one, here's the first three second clip descended the ladder and found himself soon upon firm rock okay so now here's what they generated i guess using just that short snippet of that person's voice they moved thereafter cautiously about the hut groping before and about them to find something to show that warrenton had fulfilled his mission that's pretty amazing i mean that that sounds pretty good. Now, I'm guessing that, of course, that the 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 ones they're putting on this page are probably the best of the best. I'm sure some of the ones that these things generate don't sound that good. But it's, it, I guess what this is showing is it could be at least this good. So here's here's one more example. Here, First of all, here's the three-second snippet. Things were showered upon him by all who saw him. And here is what they generated by typing in some texts and telling their model to read that text using the voice that it learned from that 3-second snippet. Thus did this humane and right-minded father comfort his unhappy daughter and her mother embracing her again, did all she could to soothe her feelings. That is pretty amazing actually. I I'm I'm shocked that 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 sounds pretty darn good. I mean obviously, obviously there's some really great uses for something like this. I mean think of how much better audiobooks are going to be. Now it's going to put a lot of audiobooks readers out of business. But you could basically now have your Kindle or whatever read you this stuff without actually buying the audio file. I mean, I just, some of the Kindles actually do that now, but not nearly this well. And think if you could do it using a voice of someone you really like, you know, a famous uh, audiobook reader or another famous celebrity who you just happen to really like their voice, like, you know, maybe James Earl Jones or something. But here's the other thing we need to take away from this. Um, we are entering a new era. Uh, AI tools of various types are used to create text that sounds very believably written by uh, a regular human, images and audio, and in some cases video, that is getting really hard to distinguish from something that was real. And when I read this article, my immediate thought was, I'm screwed. (laughs) I mean, I've got hundreds and hundreds of hours of my voice out on the internet right now, it would be trivial for one of these tools to take in all that data and then make a very, very lifelike sounding Carrie voice. And I don't worry that someone's going to come along and make podcasts using my voice. I'm worried that someone's going to take my voice, then contact somebody I know, uh, maybe somebody in my family, maybe uh, some friends or something and use it in some sort of a campaign to try to trick them into sending money or giving up credentials or something like that. And this could all be happening to us as well. I mean, we've got our voices on our voicemail prompts, for example. Hi, this is Carrie. I'm not here to leave a message. We have videos of ourselves online that have our voice in them. Sometimes those are videos that are posted by somebody that's not us. If you've ever done any kind of a conference talk that was recorded. So okay, so 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 I guess real quick, what, what can you do about that? This is going to sound goofy. But I mean, if you ever think this is a problem, if you ever get a call from somebody, you know, and the voice sounds like them, but they're asking some really weird stuff. You know, challenge them, you know, say, you know, Hey, look, I know this sounds weird, but answer a couple questions for me and ask them questions that only they should know. I mean, if you really want to take this to extremes, if you're really worried about this, let's say, you know, you were in a position like a CEO or something, uh, or you're in in a position where you could tell other people to do things and the things they might be able to do would be potentially bad for your company or for other people or whatever. You know, you might want to develop some sort of code phrase or secret phrase or safe word or something you know that you can challenge people with to make sure that they really are who they say they are because it was not long before this technology will be so good that we could do it all in real time like we'll have a chat gpt thing backed up with your voice so that somebody can ask a question and this system will quickly you know listen to what was just said turn that into a gpt prompt turn it back around and then and uh put it in someone else's voice, uh, that technology is going to happen. I'm not sure how soon, but it will happen. Okay, let's move on from the conspiracy sounding stuff. (laughs) Let's go on to the next story. And this is from the record, but it's about a Microsoft study that I thought was interesting. And before I get into this, it talks real quick. It talks about honeypot servers. And uh, we've talked about that maybe a couple times before, but a honeypot is, is basically a trick or a fake server used by the good guys to trick the bad guys into trying to hack it so they could learn about the bad guys. So it's kind of a, a decoy. And one more term that I wanted to find brute force attacks, a brute force attack is just guessing every possible password. For example, if you're trying to get into something, if I don't know the passwords to brute force, that is to guess every password I can think of. And bad guys have lists of known passwords because, you know, you know, the the list I talk about every year where it's like, here's this year's list of the worst passwords. Um, That is like the first 10 or 20 passwords of a list that's probably 10,000 or 50,000 passwords long. Uh, These are all the ones that were successfully hacked. The bad guys keep track of all these passwords and share them amongst themselves for situations where they can throw every password they can at something to see if they can get in. Okay, so with those two terms defined, let me read this article. According to data collected by Microsoft's network of honeypot servers, most brute force attackers primarily attempt to guess short passwords with very few attacks targeting credentials that are either long or contain complex characters. And this is a quote from Ross Bevington, a security researcher at Microsoft quote, I analyze the credentials entered from over 25 million brute force attacks against SSH or secure shell. This is around 30 days of data in Microsoft's sensor network. of attempts used a password between one and seven characters. A password over 10 characters was only seen in 6% of cases, unquote. And then there's also a graph which you can't see, and it kind of shows uh, the number of guesses by how many characters were in the password, and there was a strong peak right at six characters, like 30% of all passwords used in brute force attacks were six characters long bevington says that only seven percent of the brute force attempts he analyzed in the sample data included a special character in addition 39 percent actually had at least one number and none of those brute force attempts used passwords that included white space the researchers findings suggest that longer passwords that include special characters are most likely safe from the vast majority of brute force attacks as long as they haven't been leaked online and are not part of the attackers brute forcing dictionaries In addition, Bevington said that based on the data from more than 14 billion brute force attacks attempted against Microsoft's network of honeypot servers, also known as a sensor network, until September this year, attacks on remote desktop protocol or RDP servers have tripled compared to 2020, seeing a rise of 325%. And a final couple quotes from uh, Bevington quote, stats on SSH and VNC are just as bad. They just haven't changed as much since last year. By default, solutions like RDP are turned off. But if you decide to turn them on, don't put stuff straight on the Internet. Remember that attackers will go after any brute forcible remote admin protocol. If you must have yours accessible on the Internet, use strong passwords, managed identity, and MFA, So I thought that was really interesting to see, like, you know, because they actually have these honeypot servers that are being attacked and they want them to be attacked. So that's how they learn stuff like this, you know, get statistics on what the bad guys are up to. When the bad guys, you know, are trying to brute force passwords, they're going to stick with the ones that that are weakest. So I constantly tell you to use a password manager, which means that you would have passwords that are potentially 20 characters long and completely random with all sorts of numbers and special characters, something that could not possibly be guessed. But if you insist on knowing what your passwords are and choosing them yourself and trying to remember them on your own, at least make them, you know. 10, 12 characters long and make sure they've got you know special characters in them uh, not all systems accept white space as in like space or tab uh, you know not all password systems accept those as part of a password but you can use other special characters and at least you'll know at this point that in most cases the bad guys are not even going to try those because they figure I guess that people that are you know, Spending enough time in their passwords to create something a little bit longer with a few more characters in it aren't even worth bothering try, trying to guess because it would just take too long. All right, next up, this is from Tech Radar, And if you are still, for some reason, not upgraded yet to Windows 10, at least, uh, and you're on, in other words, you're probably Windows 7 or Windows 8 still, there has been a way, kind of a backdoor, hush, hush, nudge, nudge, wink, wink <laughs> method to upgrade from those older versions of Windows to Windows 10 for free. As long as you had a valid license for Windows seven or Windows eight, there has been a way and it was official for about a year. uh, And then it kind of went unofficial since then, but apparently that is going away very, very soon. So if you've been sitting around waiting to to, to do this, you should wait no longer. So uh, let me read this article. Microsoft just implemented something we never thought we'd see the software giant do. Namely, closing the loophole allowing for Windows 7 and 8 users to upgrade to Windows 10 or Windows 11 at no cost. We need to rewind time considerably to return to the start of this particular story, all the way back to when Windows 10 was first launched and Windows 7 and 8 users were allowed a free upgrade to the new OS. That freebie offer only lasted for a year after the launch of Windows 10, officially. But even after the deadline expired, it actually remained in place. In short, anyone with a valid Windows 7 or 8 key could still upgrade their PC to Windows 10 just fine. And by extension, Windows 11.2, when that emerged, assuming that the various additional system requirements were met, including a TPM or a Trusted Platform Module. Essentially, this was a loophole that Microsoft never bothered to close, until now, because as Windows Central spotted, the company just made an official announcement that this unofficial upgrade path is now blocked, with a caveat. The software giant said, quote, Microsoft's free upgrade offer for Windows 10 11 ended July 29th, 2016. The installation path to obtain the Windows 7 8 free upgrade is now removed as well. Upgrades to Windows 11 from Windows 10 are still free, unquote. However, as Windows Central points out, it's important to note that technically an upgrade is still possible as we write this. This change has just been applied with Windows 11 preview builds for now, but it will come through to the release version of the OS before long, no doubt. So if you want to avail yourself of a free upgrade from Windows 7 or 8, you better move sharpish. It may even no longer be possible by the time you read this, or in my case, I tell you this. So yeah, yeah if you're still on Windows seven or eight, there has been this weird kind of loophole or backdoor way of upgrading to Windows 10 for free, even though supposedly Microsoft only ran that program for the first year of Windows 10. Uh, It was still quietly available if you knew what to do. So if you go to my show notes and find this article, you can find links that will show you how to do this. Or if you just search the web, I'm sure you can find that as well. Uh, But you better get on it, because it sounds like that little technical loophole is about to be closed for good. Next up, this is from Ars Technica, and it's about the FCC and their plans to finally reinstate net neutrality rules. Federal Communications Commissioner Chairwoman Jessica Rosenrussel today announced plans to restore net neutrality rules similar to those that were adopted during the Obama era, and then repealed by the FCC when Donald Trump was president. Rosenworcel announced her plans in a speech today, one day after the FCC gained a 3-2 Democratic majority with the swearing-in of Commissioner Anna Gomez. The FCC previously operated with a 2-2 partisan deadlock because the U.S. Senate never voted on whether to confirm President Biden's first nominee, Gigi Sohn. The net neutrality rules would prohibit Internet service providers from blocking or throttling lawful internet traffic and from selling quote unquote fast lanes that prioritize some traffic over others in exchange for payment similar to the previous rules fcc officials said they don't plan to impose rate regulation or unbundling requirements that would force broadband providers to share networks with other companies in a fact sheet the fcc said the proposal would quote establish basic rules for internet service providers that prevent them from blocking legal content throttling your speeds and creating fast lanes that favor those who could pay for access unquote The first step for the FCC is to vote on a notice of proposed rulemaking that will seek public comment on the rules. The vote on the NPRM is scheduled for October 19th. Based on past practice, it will take at least a few months to gather public comments, analyze them, and then propose and adopt final rules. Rosenworcel, a commissioner since 2012 criticized the Trump era's FCC's decision to stop regulating broadband as a common carrier service. She pointed out that the rules were upheld in court and popular with the public, and that the repeal was met with an overwhelming public backlash. Rosenworcel's proposed rules would mostly will mostly mirror those approved under the then-chairman Tom Wheeler in 2015, senior FCC officials said in a call with reporters today. The proposal would clarify broadband providers as common carriers under Title II of the Communications Act, providing the legal authority to impose net neutrality rules and other regulations. Broadband providers are likely to argue that rules aren't necessary because they've behaved themselves in the five years since the previous net neutrality order was repealed in 2018. To counter that argument, FCC officials today pointed out that ISPs are required to follow net neutrality rules in individual states, even though the federal government doesn't have uniform rules for the whole country. Then-Chairman Ajit Pai's attempt to preempt all state net neutrality rules was rejected in court. California enforces net net neutrality rules that mirror what the FCC adopted in 2015 and beat industry attempts to get the law overturned. FCC officials said today that nearly a dozen states enforce net neutrality through state laws, government contracting policy, and executive orders. While they stressed the importance of having a strong set of rules for the entire U.S., they said that ISPs are already subject to a patchwork of state laws. FCC officials today said the reclassification of broadband will close a national security loophole. They said that the FCC relies on its authority over voice service to keep hostile foreign actors from com compromising networks and that regulating broadband under Title II will provide additional power to impose cybersecurity requirements on network operators. That includes blocking authorization of companies controlled by adversarial governments, they said. Rose and Russell stressed that placing broadband under Title II classification will give the FCC stronger authority over more than just net neutrality. For example, the FCC can use Title II to require internet providers to address long outages and report detailed data on the outages, she said. Now, this article goes much, much, much longer. So if you're interested, uh, check out the show notes, click the link for more. But this is welcome news and long overdue. It's sad that this is so political. Uh, It really, really shouldn't be. But it is what it is. And now suddenly the FCC has uh, uh, an odd number of people so they can now actually get something done. And uh, this sounds like a great first step. All right, next up, an article from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I've been telling you about Google's Privacy Sandbox and their new topics thing that replaced the flock thing, and uh, Google's recently been rolling it out. If you're, running go- if you're running Google Chrome, you probably saw this pop up, and you may have just clicked through, and I want to make sure that, you know, you get a chance to go back and fix that if you want to. So let me read EFF's response to this whole Privacy Sandbox thing, and then uh, they will explain, and I will pass along to you, how to... Go back and change your settings. Google has rolled out Privacy Sandbox, a Chrome feature first announced back in 2019 that, among other things, exchanges third party cookies, the most common form of tracking technology, for what the company is now calling Topics. Topics is a response to pushback against Google's proposed Federated Learning of Cohorts, or FLOC which we called a terrible idea because it gave Google even more control over advertising in its browser while not truly protecting user privacy. While there have been some changes to how this works since 2019, Topics is still tracking your internet use for Google's behavioral advertising. If you use Chrome, you can disable this feature through a series of three confusing settings. With the version of Chrome browser Uh, released in September 2023, Google tracks your web browsing history and generates a list of advertising topics based on websites you visit. This works as you might expect. At launch, there are almost 500 advertising categories, like student loans and college financing, parenting, or undergarments that you get dumped into based on whatever you're reading about online. A site that supports Privacy Sandbox will ask Chrome what sorts of things you're supposedly into and then display an ad accordingly. The idea is that instead of dozens of third party cookies placed on websites by different advertisers and tracking companies, Google itself will track your interests in the browser itself, controlling even more of the advertising ecosystem than it already does. Google calls this enhanced ad privacy, perhaps leaning into the idea that starting in 2024, they plan to phase out the third party cookies that many advertisers currently use to track people but the company will still gobble up your browsing habits to serve you ads, preserving its bottom line in a world where competition on privacy is pushing it to phase out third-party cookies. Google plans to test Privacy Sandbox throughout 2024, which means that for the next year or so, third-party cookies will continue to collect and share your data in Chrome. The new topics improves somewhat over the 2019 Flock. It does not use the Flock ID, a number that many worried could be used to fingerprint you. The ad targeting topics are all public on GitHub, and that's a link if you want to go see what these 500-some topics are, hopefully avoiding any clearly sensitive categories such as race, religion, or sexual orientation. Chrome's ad privacy controls, which we detail below, allow you to see what sorts of interest categories Chrome puts you in and remove any topics you don't want to see ads for. There's also a simple means to opt out, which Flock never really had during testing. Other browsers like Firefox and Safari baked in privacy protections from third party cookies in 2019 and 2022, respectively. Neither of those browsers has anything like Privacy Sandbox, which makes them better options if you'd prefer more privacy. Google referring to any of this as privacy is deceiving. Even if it's better than third party cookies, the Privacy Sandbox is still tracking. It's just done by one company instead of dozens. Instead of waffling between different tracking methods, even with mild improvements, we should work towards a world without behavioral ads. But if you're sticking to Chrome, you can at least turn these features off. And I will just mention for now, um, if you're using Chrome, (laughs) you know, I I think Google's going to know what you're doing regardless. And some of these companies have habits of turning these things back on without telling you. But anyway, if you insist on using Chrome, here's how you can turn these off. Depending on when you last updated Chrome, you may have already received a pop-up asking you to agree to enhanced ad privacy in Chrome. If you just clicked the big blue button that said, got it, to make the pop-up go away, you opted yourself in. But you can still get back to the opt-out page easily enough by clicking the three-dot icon up in the upper right, I think, and then settings, and then privacy and security, and then ad privacy page. Here you'll find this screen with three different settings one add topics this is the fundamental component of privacy sandbox that generates a list of your interests based on the websites you visit if you leave this enabled you'll eventually get a list of all your interests which are are used for ads as well as the ability to block individual topics the topics roll over every four weeks and random ones will be thrown in for good measure and that's supposedly a way to throw off tracking and make you more private but whatever you can disable this entirely uh, by setting the toggle to off Two, site-suggested ads. This confusingly named toggle is what allows advertisers to do what's called remarketing or retargeting. Also known as, quote, after I buy a sofa, every website on the internet advertises that same sofa to me, end With this feature, site one gives information to your Chrome instance, like this person loves sofas. And site two, which runs ads, can interact with Chrome such that a sofa ad will be shown, even without site two learning that you love sofas. Disable this by turning the toggle to off. And three, ad measurement. This allows advertisers to track ad performance by storing data in your browser that's then shared with other sites. For example, if you see an ad for a pair of shoes, the site would get information about the time of day, whether the ad was clicked, and where it was displayed. Disable this setting by turning the toggle to off. So again, if you insist on using Chrome, then I would absolutely say that you should go and turn all three of these things. Off. All right, let's move on one more main article and then one a quick note and then we'll do our tip of the week. And this is from CNET and it's about a new application from Consumer Reports called permission slip. If you've been using the internet for any substantial period of time, it's likely that your online personal data is scattered all over the place. When you sign up for a new social media platform, for example, or purchase something online, you give those companies pieces of your personal information. That private information is collected by both companies and data brokers, which can then sell it to other companies who can use it to sell ads targeted at you. If you're anything like me, you gave out your online data willy-nilly when signing up for rewards programs, for example, without knowing what you were really doing. And you're paying for it now with ads that track you across the internet. But Consumer Reports now has an app called Permission Slip that can reach out to companies for you to order them to not sell your information. To help you claw back a bit of your personal data, some states have passed legislation that allows you to exercise some control over what happens to it. Depending on the state, you can prohibit data brokers from selling your data or delete your online data outright. But the process of controlling your data on websites can be confusing, and it's often unclear whether you've opted in or out of selling your personal data. And due to the nature of how your data is shopped around, it could nearly be impossible to locate all of your online data and protect it. This is where services like Consumer Reports permission slip come in permission slip does the legwork of collecting the places that might have your data including more than 100 companies that use your personal information all you have to do is submit your request for your info to either be deleted outright or simply not sold anymore to get started using permission slip all you have to do is sign up for the service with your email address i decided to sign up with the email address that i frequently use when signing up for rewards programs or making accounts online that way i would be addressing most of the places that would be selling my data and by the way it's not clear to me if that's required like when you sign up, do you do you only get to use one email address like I have many. So I've not tried this tool yet myself. So I'm just going by what this article says. After signing up, you'll be presented with options, uh, popular companies and data brokers that could have your information. If you think that a company might have your data and you want to do something about it, select learn more and take action. If you don't think this company has your data and you would like to no longer see it as an option, select hide and it won't clog up your suggestions. Once you've selected Learn More and Take Action, you will be taken to a screen that shows you what sort of data the company usually collects and what your options are. Depending on the company and the state you live in, you could have the option to prohibit companies from selling your data or to delete your account outright. When you've decided whether you want to delete your account with a specific company or simply prohibit them from selling your data, Promotion Slip will ask you a couple of questions that can help companies and data brokers correctly identify you and properly take care of your information. After you input your personal info for the first time, the process for continuing to remove your data is pretty simple. You will just scroll through Permission Slip's suggestions, select companies that might have your info, and then delete your account or prohibit the company from using your data. It's important to note that while Permission Slip is submitting the request on your behalf, you still might have to confirm the request directly with the company. It also might take a bit of time to have your request processed and your information deleted, so patience will be your friend during this process. So I've already seen kind of what they're uh, alluding to here because I've gone through other various means to delete my data. And yes, oftentimes it does trigger, you know, you you can ask one company to do this on your behalf. You can deputize them to do it. You can make them an agent for you to do this in every legal way possible. But in a lot of cases, a lot of these companies still want to hear directly from you. Partially because that makes it harder. Right. (laughs) You know, instead of I'm trying to pawn this off on somebody, I might even be paying some other company to do this for me. And yet they still want to talk to me. So yeah, you'll still get some stuff from them saying, Are you sure you really want to do this? I need to confirm this. Sometimes they'll, they'll ask for some identity confirmation, which will seem ironic, you'll have to give these people more information so they can delete your information. Um, this is kind of part of the process This is where things are today, even with the laws we have in place. And obviously, as this article is talking about here, it really depends on where you live. If you even have the right to do this, which is just sad. And, and for the most part in the United States, most of us still don't have this capability because we don't live in a state, you know, statistically speaking, uh, that allows us to make these requests and have them honored. So until we get a federal privacy law, uh, or until you the state you're living in, you know, institutes one. You may still be out of luck here, but again, you know, kudos to Consumer Reports for trying to make this easier on the user. There are other companies out there that do this as well. Of course, we know about Privacy for Cars from Andrea Mico. They do this uh, very specifically around cars that you've maybe sold or had repossessed, or fleet cars or rental cars. You know, any car that you don't own anymore that may have been paired with your phone that might have your data. For example, there's a company called Delete Me that does sort of these sorts of things. There are now you know companies that are cropping up to try to fill this need. Uh, and I'm guessing permission slip is free from Consumer Reports. So, you know, that that's good. And, 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 you know, obviously we trust Consumer Reports. We've had representatives from them on the show in the past. I love the work they're doing. And we will definitely have them back again in the future. Okay, one more quick thing, and then we'll get to the tip of the week. So we talked to Susie Dawson a while back, and she is the founder of Panquake. And they are still working on this privacy-respecting subscription-based social media service called Panquake um, with some very, very interesting features. I'm just dying for this to come out and see what it's going to be like. Uh, I really want to try it. But in the meantime, out of nowhere, (laughs) they have released what they are calling Panquake Me, which is a free and privacy respecting URL shortening service. You know, so it's like Bitly or some of these other ones, but uh, they can, you know, a lot of those can be shady. A lot of those, a lot of them have a lot of built-in tracking. This service specifically does not have that. Uh, And it's also got a couple other interesting aspects to the feature. So the idea of the URL shortener is you've got this really long, ugly URL, this web address, and perhaps, I don't know, maybe you're on a podcast and you want to be able to tell people about it in a way that they can remember it, which is why I have my own personal shortener that I own and operate myself called fdsd.me and so i can do these all myself i control them i can change them whenever i want and i know that they are going to be privacy respecting but if you don't have the wherewithal or 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 the the time and patience to set up your own such uh, server you can now use this service called panquake me and that is pnqk.me So I'll put a link in the show notes. But if you want to go to pnqk.me, there's information right on that page. And the, the main thing to know is that not only does it take those really nasty long links and shorten them into something that's easier to type and perhaps easier to remember, though in most cases, I think they're just kind of random things. It also strips out any of the marketing and ad trackers. If you've ever clicked a link somewhere and see all the UTM source and UTM other medium and those kind of things on there, those are all tracking things. And they're used for analytics in a lot of cases, which can be very harmless. But in a lot of cases, they also have unique identifiers in them that are used to track you. So if if you don't want to bother trying to strip that out yourself, or afraid you're going to somehow mess up the link if you do, this does that for you, it automatically strips off all that extra crap you don't need. Uh, so it's not even included in the link. And then the other thing it does and this is really kind of interesting. Uh, it it works with one of the free online archive services to make sure that that link never dies. So if you want to make sure that that link doesn't ever go dead, this service actually links to an archived version of the page that was there when you set up the link. Now, I've actually already talked to Susie about this, because in, in my situation, that's not what I want. I want that link to be live. Like, I want to be able to link to a page that I can change so uh you know maybe they'll uh, put that feature in at some point i've also asked susie to see if they would give free qr codes as well because that's another thing that we've talked about in this show that's really slimy a lot of uh, quote-unquote free online qr code generators are really nasty under the covers and end end up trying to charge you for those services and do other nasty things so anyway i don't know if that will come into the into that service yet or not but anyway i thought it was kind of interesting so i wanted to kind of refresh you on where things are with panquake and in the meantime, while we're waiting for their social media service to come around, they've come out with an interesting new tool. All right, so real quick, uh, we're already a little bit long. I wanted to give you my tip of the week. And I can keep it short this week because it's a little bit redundant. So this is mostly, honestly, for my blog readers and my, and my newsletter subscribers. Because we just talked about this last week with Nick Oles. But in honor of Cybersecurity Awareness Month, one of the four key messages that, uh, that CISA has for us this year is to beware of fishing and not just finding it and preventing yourself from being falling victim to them, but also reporting it. So I put together a nice blog article on this. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you've already got this waiting for you in your inbox right now. So I'm just going to go over this really quickly. Because again, we talked a lot about this with Nick last week, but I'm going to give you kind of my quick take on on uh, finding a fish, catching a fish, and then what to do when you find one. So again, real quick, some of the red flags, things that should tip you off that this email is trying to trick you into giving, for instance, your login credentials for your bank or for some other site like Amazon or PayPal or Apple. Um, A lot of these phishing sites are trying to trick you into giving giving them access to something. And it may be other things like credit card information or information they might use to steal your identity. So when you get these emails, and they're most often emails, sometimes they come as text messages, but most often emails. Uh, Here's a few things to look at. Here's some red flags. Uh, look at the sender, make sure the sender makes sense. A lot of times the from email is spoofed entirely and you, you can't trust it anyway, but you might get a clue there though, that if the email address is, you know, reply at amazon that, that is not the same as amazon.com. So, you know, it may be, it may just say amazon.com. That doesn't mean it's a good email, uh, cause that can easily be spoofed. But if it's something that's definitely not Amazon, or definitely not who they purport to be, that's a red flag. Uh, If they just generically refer to you, if they if you know, if this is Amazon or the IRS or your bank, they know who you are, they know your account numbers, they know your full name. So if they just say dear customer, or hey, you or dear, and then they use your email address username, you know, that's they don't know you that's that's demonstrating that they really don't know who you are. And that should raise a red flag. Um, If you get worked up reading this email, if you start getting scared or angry you know a lot of times uh, the bad guys use emotions to try to get you to act a lot of times they also try to be very urgent like look if you don't do this right now we're going to close your account or we're going to fine you or we're going to send the police after you or whatever And, and other times they actually try to work on your altruism they try to you know pull your heartstrings you know this there's this horrible new disaster unfortunately this happens a lot of times when there's disasters they send out notes saying would you like to help donate to the cause and they're just scams But a lot of times they're very urgent. They try to play on your emotions. They try to get you to not think and just act. And then finally, and this is one we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, like (laughs) is poor grammar and poor spelling. That should be a big red flag because big companies, generally speaking, are not going to make those kinds of mistakes. So if they have weird turns of phrase, you know, if they're using, you know, kind of odd sounding uh, language, like perhaps, I don't know, English might not be their first language. That should be a big red flag. Now, with all the AI tools we have today, a lot of that's going to go away, unfortunately. They're going to be sounding a lot more believable with maybe no errors in them whatsoever. So this particular red flag may be something that goes away. But right now, it's still something you should look for. So if you find one, what you, what should you do? If you get an email that you think is spam, honestly, the easiest thing to do is just delete it. Just forget about it, delete it, uh, and go on with your life. However, two things you might want to do. First of all, you could report this. Either within your app, you could say mark as junk or send to spam. And that way, your phone and or your email service provider uh, get information about these scams and then train themselves. And maybe that would stop future emails from coming through to you and other people. But in a nod to CISA and what they're asking, you could actually report this stuff to other organizations as well. There's actually an anti phishing working group, which is a consortium of a bunch of interested parties. And they have an email, uh, which is report at apwg.org. And the APWG stands for anti phishing working group. So you can actually forward the email to them if you're pretty sure it's uh, a, a phishing scam, so that they can learn more about these things. And maybe they can even follow up on it. You can also register a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission here in the United States. Uh, Around the world, you may have other local authorities that you could send this to. Uh, There's a lot of these out there now. You might have to do a little research to find them. But um, there's a lot of state and federal kind of organizations that want to collect this information and actually work to go out and find these people in some cases to try to stop these things. So uh, you can actually try to solve this problem and not just ignore it. But also, if you really are worried that this might be a legit email, if you're worried that, okay, I don't think this is real, but I'm not sure, and I don't want to take a chance that you know I might have my account closed or whatever, uh, what I recommend is don't trust the email itself. Anything that's in that email is suspect. Don't reply to that email. Don't call any phone numbers that are in that email. Don't click any links that are in that email. But if it's, you know, it's from Apple.com or PayPal or Amazon or the IRS, if you leave that email alone and go find a reputable source to find contact information for that site. Or if it's a site you actually have an account with, you might already have a browser favorite or a bookmark for that site. Use that. You know, don't trust whatever they give you, no matter what, what it looks like and how legit it might look to be. Um, don't trust it. Don't use anything they give you. Uh, go independently to contact that site, that organization. And if something's wrong, they'll let you know. And if not, you might want to tell them like, hey, I got this scam that you know from somebody purporting to be you would you like me to forward it to you or do you have any procedures to deal with that so there you go there's my quick recap of how you deal with fish uh and another nod out to nick Oles in his book how to catch a fish and 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 be sure to register to get a free copy of his book go to fdsd.me slash catch a fish and there you go there is your news and your tip of the week All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, we've got my interview with Andy Yen from Proton. That was a a very interesting interview. I've got a lot of other great ones already in the can, just waiting to be edited and sent to you. And I've got several other interviews on the books as well. So we've got some great content coming up. Uh, Be sure to subscribe if you haven't. Tell your friends and family to subscribe as well. Spread the word. I really am trying to increase my listenership, so every little bit helps you know, post something on social media. If you tag me, I will certainly uh, like it and repost. You can find all my social media information by going to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons and finding the contact page. I haven't mentioned this in a while, but hey, if you're looking for some Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons cool merch uh, with the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons logo on it, check out my merchandise at fd.sd slash, you guessed it, merch. All right, that'll do it for this week, everybody. Take care and stay safe out there. And as always, until next week, don't get caught with your garbage down.